Today's episode is sponsored by Itential. Itential is network and cloud automation. The Itential platform makes it easy for you to gain insight into your entire network infrastructure. Bring your network into compliance through remediation, automatically prevent non-compliant changes from making their way into the network, gain the confidence you need to automate your network safely. Know your network, automate your network. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there are sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. If you got something cool working with IPv6, hey, we want to hear about it from you. So join us on the IPv6 Buzz and, uh, you know, you can fill us in on how you got it working and why it's really cool. I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffey and Scott Hogue. And today we're going to be talking about the rightmost 64 bits of an IPv6 address. So guys, let's jump in and, and just start talking about, I guess, those lower 64 and, and chat about how 64 bits is is uh, is is sort of a weird breakpoint for, for, for IPv6. Maybe we can explain some of the role about how we ended up with a slash 64 versus a slash 96 or a slash whatever. <laughs> yeah, what is that all about? Yeah, what is all that about? So I, I think maybe a little bit of history there might be helpful for folks to understand uh, where that came, where that came about, and I guess, I guess we can, we can drudge through the old RFC conversations, maybe a little bit about where some of that came from. I don't know. Sure. Well, it, I'm not too proud to admit that it took me a while working with IPv6 before I realized that, holy cow, 64 bits of the available bits in the address are reserved, and you know, because I, I think before that I was sort of just assuming, in my IPv4 thinking mode that yeah, I would have things like a slash 80 or a slash 96 or uh, slash you know 120. And it's not as if those things don't exist in the real world as much as we discourage them. But it, it really was a bit of a moment of aha when I was like, wait a second, 64 bits of this entire address are supposed to be reserved exclusively for just identifying the host. I'm like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's it's sort of a mind blower. And it's, I, I was like you, Tom, uh, when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I've got 128 bits to play with, right? And so I, I was used to doing, you know, variable link subnet masking, right? And, you know, CIDR and the rest. And I'm like, I should be able to do all the same stuff in V6. And to a great degree, you can, but there's certain capabilities within V6 that are sort of reserved for this slash 64 bit interface identifier side that were sort of baked into the protocol, right? And there's a set of behaviors that are associated with this 64-bit uh, space that allow us to, you know, do things like auto-configure addresses, being able to use something like uh, Slack use, using router advertisements and being able to advertise a prefix portion, that upper 64-bit, and having the host configure its lower 64-bit dynamically. And there's a bunch of different ways and methodologies to do all of this. And I think that's what we really want to talk about in, in, this, particular, <laughs> in this particular show is how that lower 64 portion actually gets generated, the different methods, and, and thinking a little bit about like where that came about and why maybe sticking to a 64 would make a lot of operational sense for mm -hmm. organizations. Yeah, because you really hit the nail on the head related to, uh, you know, this probably works in a lot of stacks if you want to subnet past the 64-bit but you're, you're just putting yourself in a situation where operationally you're breaking one of the big key advantages that V6 offers right out of the gate in terms of Slack and, uh, and network discovery. Um, so 
Yeah, the, but that's not to say that uh, that there aren't uh, aren't those use cases, but but they do seem to be few and far between. And yeah, we should really focus on on how that identifier gets used in in the most um, standard way with IPv6. So I guess I guess what makes sense to to, to sort of walk people through is maybe a very quick, you know, if you're going to fill up this 64 bit space and you need to auto assign an address. There are probably sort of two two ways that we would commonly think of of wanting to do it, or maybe maybe three. But the the two that come to my head is just randomly assign something, right? Just pull something out of the air and stuff it full of sixty four bits, and the likelihood that you're going to, you know, collide with someone else in a sixty four bit address space is pretty small, you know, infinitesimally small. So you're more than likely going to be able to use what we call like, you know, just random addresses and you can get up and operate on the network based off of this random address that you go ahead and assign yourself. I think that's one, right? Mm -hmm. This is yeah. a checkbox. Even if that probability of collision is very low, you still do, you know, nodes do duplicate address detection right. to prevent an overlap, uh, you know, a collision of addresses. Yep. But yeah, even though it's incredibly slow or small. Um, and <laughs> even when too. you're defining like a, a DHCPv6 scope, you would think right. in the past you would be like, oh, I have to exclude, you know, dot one or I hold the dot one to dot 10 in reserve on my slash 24 because right. I don't want to collide with anything else. So I make my scope smaller. But in IPv6, you could just make the scope the whole thing. And you're right. The probability of you colliding with colon colon one, if that is used as your first top, you know, default gateway, pretty small. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So a lottery so ticket. <laughs> that day, if they do collide, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, that's that's the world telling you go buy a lottery ticket for sure. I think I think the other side for that, if if you don't have it ran away side, you want some sort of way to um, maybe reproduce an address, uh, um, unique uh, a, a unique address, but you want it reproducible every single time. So maybe there's a particular interface type that you want to come up and have it, make sure that it has the same address every single time. And this would be common for something like a router interface, right? Like you sort of wanted to come up with the same address every time so that everyone sort of knows how to appear and if they have config files with it or some other sort of information in there, you want it to come up and, and be reproducible. And so that's where we came up with this. That's where they came up with the whole concept of uh, EUI 64, right? Which is a, sort of a very, it's, it's a programmatic way of coming up with the lower 64 address space based off of MAC addresses. Right, so that 48-bit MAC address uh, in Ethernet, or actually, this works for I think for you know for FireWire. I think uh, is is 64-bit MAC addresses. So you just take the 64-bit and put it straight in there, and flip one bit still for the local local flag. But I think you know you can take any any size up to 64 bits and place it in there. If it has a 64-bit MAC, you just use that. If that's 48-bit, we do this process of EUI 64 and stuff off of you know populate in the middle on FFFE and, and we're off to the races, right? For getting, for getting, getting that address to work. And that's another fireware. <laughs> fireware. Gosh, I got to, I got to get my zip drive because that has that <laughs> RFC on it. <laughs> we got to test it. <laughs> I, well, I think I, 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 think I carry forward to Thunderbolt, right? Yeah. Or, or, or whatever the USB-C standard set is for today. Okay. So I'm yeah. old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and to some extent, what you, you kind of, you even date yourself by talking about EUI 64, because it, it's one of those things where if you were, were sort of paying attention to IPv6 a decade ago, and you were looking at how host address assignment was happening and the IID was being configured, 
it was, you know, a lot of you, a lot of UI 64. And then of course you're like, well, that's the Mac address in there and I can trace, I can trace it flash forward 10 years with things like stable slack and, and temporary addresses. You know, mm -hmm. when, when you, when you teach folks that are new to IPv6 about EUI 64, and then the very, the literally the first thing you have to do is like, well, that's not what you're going to see on your interface on your laptop <laughs> because of stable slack or temporary addresses. Right. Yeah. Or privacy addresses. Privacy yes. Addresses, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's this is that interesting fun space where the lower sixty four starts getting convoluted quickly in terms of what method, <laughs> what methods are being used for what purpose. Um, but yeah, I think I think for many networks, since the audience is 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 a good portion of the audience is principally made up of network engineers, network interfaces on routing and switching devices have a tendency to do EUI 64. Uh, it's, it's, it's a stable address that, that can be reproduced from the MAC address that you would assign. And so you're, you're going to tend to see that for, for networking devices and how they utilize it. And uh, often you can go in and obviously statically or manually assign whatever address you would like to have on that device interface too. And uh, and that's possible to do on host operating systems uh, as well. So you have complete control over that lower 64, you can statically set it up. And that's what I meant by the third way to the common third way that you're gonna sort of see that. And then uh, I guess in addition, we'd be negligent if we didn't mention, as, as Scott had mentioned earlier, that the DHCP side, that it, it can be handled by a DHCP server and just be assigned to the host. It's still gonna be randomized in very much the same way as a as a as a privacy or temporary address would be you're not going to have anything known unless you actually build reserved addresses in there and actually you know build those out specifically and that's actually a, a little bit tougher process than, than what we right. see in v4 but you can still build a just a standard mm -hmm. dhcp v6 pool range as you would in v4 yep. just start at one and go through you know whatever it might be yeah if, yeah, if yeah. you want if you want to do it that way yep absolutely so I think I think that that's the background of sort of the common standard 64 interface IDs. Like if you were just to, you know, say the quick ones, I think that's that's the fast and you know sort of quick and dirty of 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 64 interfaces. So let's 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 jump ahead and let's talk about maybe what's unique about 64, uh, and maybe maybe from the aspect of what's unique about what we did in V6 uh, in terms of the host base portion of the address versus V4. Because I think that's the interesting discussion. What's, you know, I, I think one well, I of the challenges. If, oh, sorry, sorry. I, I just I was going to say one of the things I think we have to also acknowledge is that there's a there's a big paradigm shift in terms of you know where you have IPv4 and an address that's associated with. Initially, the idea was that it was associated with a node with a with a single endpoint. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with v6, they really tried to decouple that with the interface identifier being applied a different IPv6 address with each with its own interface identifier being applied to interfaces, just as the name suggests. And so we can have multiple addresses on multiple interfaces. Um, and then of course, I think maybe that's where you wanted to go with it is that there's a lot of possibilities then based on, on sort of that decoupling that you can, you can really, there's some flexibility that, that allows you to engineer and innovate some new, new approaches to addressing things. Yeah, and then I think this is where it diverges from IPv4, right? Mm -hmm. IPv4, I don't think that that as a concept was really there in the same way, and uh, and and the constraints about the host base side of the addressing really didn't allow us to have some some use cases and flexibility around what we would do with with addresses. Basically, the fact that you know we can we can we can use a large subset of addresses to serve different functions, and those functions. I, I don't think we've we've as an industry have gone through and really defined all the different use cases and possibilities that we could do with those, and um, 
and I know, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe a bit of a head scratcher for, for the audience to be like, well, what are you talking about? Like what, what could actually, what could actually fit in there? So maybe, maybe we could go through, you know, a few lists of like things that we think, um, well, the stuff that's already being actually discussed and talked about, and then other ones that maybe were, were, or are sort of in early stages of what folks are talking about. I know Scott had some a short list on some of these. Yeah, like imagine you've got a data center and you've got a VLAN 100 and you've got a variety of different servers on there and and they have different functions. Maybe it's a shared subnet and it's got, you know, DNS, DHCP, other administrative servers on there and they're all statically defined, but now you've got room in the interface identifier to spread out. So you could go do like colon, colon, 1000, colon, colon, five is DNS server five and colon, colon, 2000, colon, colon, eight is DHCP v6 server, you know, eighth one. You could use bits in the interface identifier to denote the function. Oh, these are web servers. These are authentication servers. These are other things. Or let's say colon, colon, 1000 through, you know, colon, colon, through colon, colon, 1000, colon, colon, FFFF. That could be all the software containers running on pod one. And 2000, you know, colon, colon, 2000, blah, blah, blah. That's all the containers running on the second pod. So you could, you could get creative and then also know, oh, here's the pod that that container is running on. Here's the, you know. Yeah. Right. And the other right. thing that you can apply in this instance, which, you know, you can't really do in V4, it's just not enough bits. Even though, even though there's not actually any subnetting going on, you can still apply sort of subnetting logic and the way that you group those identifiers in a way that makes operational sense. So, you know, an example of this is where we have, uh, you know, we do loopback addressing and, and routing domains or we do, uh, uh, you know, point to point interfaces. And, and the way that we're actually breaking up that subnet space, we're not actually necessarily configuring it as a, as a, a CIDR uh, on the router to actually break up the subnet past the 64, but, but we can use those, those boundaries to carve up that space in a way that makes sense. So. Yeah, I, I think, and there was even, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because that's, that's internal within the 64. There's even the argument about a 60, this, we have spoken about this in other shows that 64, the, you know, the full slash 64 goes to a server, goes to a host, goes to a particular, you know, server machine so the routing becomes very simple and then you can build whatever number of addresses are required for whatever services are actually resident on that on that on that particular server um and there's some there's some advantages to doing this maybe we haven't we haven't talked about uh, you know some of the structural issues about having you know too many addresses <laughs> right yeah. on given link maybe maybe we cover that really quickly scott you want yeah. to jump it in that one yeah because a host can have multiple interface identity multiple addresses on the same interface right so you could have you know colon colon 1000 colon 22 colon colon 1000 colon 80 colon colon 1000 colon 443 and those right. are the three ports and that server has three addresses each different address is bound to a different port you could get really creative like that is that what you're yeah yeah there's there's that there's also the aspect of 
there are also may just be dynamic port ranges that are built through scripting. So if you are doing things like containers, right, and maybe you're spawning lots of containers on a given 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 system, you can just have a script that's running through whatever preset you know algorithm you want and is assigning addresses to a service that may only exist for 10 seconds or 15 mm -hmm. seconds or 30 seconds or whatever lifespan it has and then it just simply goes away and the address disappears <laughs> with it right and you're just going through your list of addresses and you know that has impacts on obviously the host operating system it needs to be able to support taking session connections on 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 that address itself but it also has impacts on the upstream switches and routers right and anything mm -hmm. that's sort of neighbor adjacent to it and yeah. so and so there's there's impacts there maybe we maybe we can noodle through a bit of that about what those impacts could be mm -hmm. and why, why why there's some concerns but it's it's you know i i think it's interesting how uh, that's structurally something we wouldn't commonly do in in, in ip at least i don't think we would commonly do that in ipv4 right we'd hide everything behind that and do like port overloading and like solve yeah. this in other ways right yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, the idea here is that let's say you had 10,000 containers spin up in just a moment with each with a unique interface identifier. Well, now you have 10,000 entries in your neighbor cache right. of some layer three device there that has to keep state. And so you may want to reduce your neighbor cache exhaustion timeout, make it shorter. You know, sometimes depending on your device, it could be five minutes, could be four hours. You may want to set that smaller to age them out faster. Another technique is to allocate the entire slash 64 to the node, you know, that server prefix and yep. let it handle it inside of itself and, you know, contain all that neighbor discovery inside of its software. And so it's not like it's relying upon a, you know, a major vendor vendors, you know, layer three device to manage the neighbor cache. Right. We just option. point a we just point a route to it and say that network exists over on that server. Please yeah. go talk to the server and, and deal with it, not with me. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and the server could run BGP yeah. or something and advertise that slash sixty four is right. It, it owns that. Right. And that solves a problem of maybe potentially not having enough, you know, uh, TCAM at the ASIC level where mm -hmm. you have to start carving up that space. You know, depending on if it's east west traffic and you can actually keep the, the table small by uh, 64 assigned to every node, then mm -hmm. that's another benefit. We pause the episode for some thinking about end-to-end -end automation across all your networks with sponsor Itential. I have long advocated for simplifying the network to help make automation work well, and I, I have lost the battle. Your, your network probably consists of physical hardware, virtualized network functions, the internet as WAN and VPN tunnels or direct connects, or both to multiple public clouds. So... How's your automation initiative working out? Maybe not great. What if you had an automation tool to help bring order to the chaos? Itential's automation platform makes complicated networks like yours more manageable. The Itential platform offers you insight into your entire infrastructure. So you lean into Itential and it's going to help you quickly detect non-compliant devices and then target them for remediation. And, and all this works if your network devices offer a modern API or are CLI only. And the big idea here, feel in control. Be confident about what your network actually is with the Itential platform doing the heavy lifting for you. And with that baseline, you can trust that the automation processes you build with the Itential platform will deliver the network state your organization requires. 
Itential also has a configuration manager tool, which lets you integrate configuration validation right into your automation processes. And this lets you take a step back from knowing the nuance of every networking component you're responsible for. You get operational consistency. You ask Itential to execute the configuration task and Itential makes sure it gets done across both your on-prem gear and cloudy virtual infrastructure. All right, so iTension does a lot, and so maybe you're worried that iTension is going to require 19 months of training and a team of rockstar developers to make it work. If you're thinking that you're missing a key point here, iTension is meant to be easy to use. For instance, iTension's low-code automation studio provides drag-and-drop network automation plus an open library of pre-built automation workflows with integrations to any IT system. End-to-end -end automation across all your networks, simplifying network automation for everyone on your team. Know your network. Automate your network. Itential. Find out more at itential.com slash packet pushers. That's itential.com slash packet pushers. And now back to today's episode. Could get really crazy and have different services listening on different unique interface identifiers and treat the interface identifier like a client identifier. So if you're doing a software defined perimeter solution or something where the address is only open for that pinhole is only open for a small little instant. You connect to it, you make your connection, you disconnect, you tear down, you remove the address, it disappears, they're ephemeral. So individual interface identifiers treat it a little bit more like a port number. Right. And it they just can come up. and go like mushrooms, just come and go. <laughs> yeah. But so so that brings up a that brings up a great a great question is how do you know what to connect to? Like we, we typically use DNS, right? To be able to know how to connect to that resource. Mm -hmm. So is, is that what we would continue to use in this case or, or is there a different way to do it? You could do you know, traditional DNS over TCP UDB port 53 or you could do DOH, DOT. You could mm -hmm. do a variety of different things. Uh, yeah, you could coordinate. If you did DNS, then you'd have to have the DNS server coordinating software through that control plane. Right. To say, oh, I'm going to hand this host back that quad A for that unique address prefix plus the unique interface identifier for just that one session and set a very short TTL on it or something. Right. Because it's only going to be relevant to that one client that did the request. So let's say mm -hmm. I'm on the laptop and I say I want to SSH to this particular device and I do that request to my DNS server, it's going to be like, it's going to talk to the server and say like, hey, well, the address we want to use, we're going to agree upon. I'm going to hand that back to, you know, that client device is going to be, yeah. you know, whatever the lower 64. I get it. Mm -hmm. I connect to that establishment for the DNS session. But, you know, Tom, who's sitting next to me with his laptop asked to do the same thing to SSH to the same server. He might get a different address, right? Because it's being but assigned. Unless you're using the same caching DNS resolver. Then right, right. It gets right. cached there for the <laughs> TTL. So hence the low TTL value. But you're right. right you right. have to solve that or do a stub resolver in the host or yeah or, or something else or, or have an agent or something of that mm -hmm. nature that that solves that dns namespace differently yeah yeah it's, it's it's sort of fascinating that you can we can basically build per session unique ip end-to-end -end connectivity right is really what mm -hmm. we're talking about it's just mm -hmm. dynamic and, and 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 uh it isn't something where you're seeing you're seeing that structural problem because this, this is a huge issue in the security world right where we're always seeing everyone connected from a neighborhood coming in and connecting to the same DNS server. It's hard to like break out, like who's talking to 
who's doing the actual request or who's doing the evil thing. So we just block the whole neighborhood for CG and that, right? Because mm-hmm. one bad actor in that entire neighborhood gets wrecks it for everyone, right? <laughs> yeah. We've actually seen implementations of these concepts before. Well, one, you know, way back, secure neighbor discovery and cryptographically mm-hmm. generated a- addresses. And then we decided, well, that was a bad idea. <laughs> and so we moved on. But, you know, the this has shown up here recently. There's a, a, a Tosh SSH server that's created that uses part of the six hex digits in the interface identifier as a time-based one-time password, TOTP, that changes every 30 seconds. So kind of like a token. You know, um, we've seen, you know, moving target IPv6 defense, you know, moving target defense systems where the server changes its addresses frequently to avoid reconnaissance or detection or other systems talking to it. Could we do the reverse? Could we assign interface identifiers to end nodes that are seemingly random, but the interface identifier somehow has some authentic authentic key or uniquely identifies that host at that moment. It looks seemingly random. So we're preserving the privacy of the client, right? But it's been a, it's been given a curated interface identifier based on some, it has a token in it of some, yeah, it has a token in it of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. And the client could change their addresses frequently as well. And we see that with temporary passwords or temporary uh, interface identifiers where they may change periodically throughout the day. Right. Right. I think, I think like in windows, what is it like eight, eight hours or less or something that will yeah. rotate through and just generate a new temporary address. And those temporary addresses for, for the audience are, are used for outbound session connections. So you're going to go mm-hmm. connect to a website that's, you know, you're, you're going to use that temporary address. You're not going to use your, your, your sort of privacy address, even though it's, it's randomly generated too, but it's, it's, it's considered more of a permanent address on the host. Yeah. So privacy address would get registered in DNS for someone else to find you, usually an yeah. active directory or something like that. Yeah, we are delving into the 64-bit address wormhole right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, Not I mean, host allocation isn't simple, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a lot going on here. So it just is, right? And I, I, think, I think this space is actually going to, my, my prediction is I think this space is going to get more complex over time. It's not going to get less complex. I think it's going to get more complex because of some of the things that Scott brought up about we suddenly have a lot more capabilities of what we can do with a 64 um, and that just weren't present for, for, for IPv4. And I think that's really going to open up. Yeah, know, although potential. I guess arguably that's going to take place more at the application level. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you so won't so, notice it. Yeah, as, exactly. It won't be. Yeah, yeah. You won't notice it as a as a network operator for for that portion, except for the fact that if you're doing sixty fours and and you're running into the neighbor exhaustion, you're going to have to go talk to your app team. It's like, please stop spinning up, you know, twenty thousand random addresses every second on the host or <laughs> never <laughs> killing my router, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I just think about how much, you know, duplicate address detection is going to go on. Yeah, a lot of NSs and NAs. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you're, you're going to kill your network just get it, getting those out on the wire to, to yeah. say like, yeah. does anyone else use this? Attic? <laughs> Thank God yeah. we got rid of broadcast yeah. though with V6. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, gosh. Still. Yeah. yeah. But still, I mean, just F- the amount of- zero two colon colon one. It's pretty darn close. <laughs> <laughs> All Shh. nodes. Don't tell them All that. nodes. <laughs> Don't tell the audience. Oh, okay. Uh, and then there's also the creep factor. You know, you think you're using a randomized identifier, interface identifier, and you have this warm, fuzzy feeling that your identity is being protected. But 
Actually, that identifier has been <laughs> given to you by something or some higher, you know, protocol overlord who's now tracking you. <laughs> You've, been tokenized. You've been tokenized. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't go there either. Okay, okay, I, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so, and and I want to, I want to, maybe, maybe we 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 sort of wrap this up because we don't want to go too far down this security scary wormhole. But maybe one of the advantages that we are seeing around some of this is is something that Jeff Tensura brought up with the equal cost multipathing and um, and how that how that sort of plays out. Because uh, having lots of addresses is actually really good for getting across ECMP, right? And and it's 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 actually a better sort of hashing way. And there's some other things that are introduced with flow labels that make it even better. But this is actually a good thing in terms of trying to handle high availability and low balancing within data center networks, right? Is actually having that that high amount of of address space in terms of what's going on within within a, a networking environment, typically, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so, the, it's really the con, the consistency um, that, and we've talked about this a lot in the past. That, and, and we haven't really—I don't think we've really arrived at that moment where we're we're getting the full benefit of IPv6 in terms of having that consistently sized space. That all of the ways in which we're going to be relying on automation going forward to to really leverage that in a way that you just can't do it in v4 because everything is so fragmented, and your your address allocations, you know. In general, have to be subjected to utilization requirements or you know availability uh, pressure that just keeps you from being able to automate things seamlessly. Yeah, yeah, I think I think there's a there's a huge advantage in that. Um, so that's a good point. Well, I don't I don't know. Do we cover enough to 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 sort of give folks a, a you know how you how you come to love a slash sixty four? <laughs> yeah, hopefully it just stimulates some creativity out there, and people are like, man, yeah, this opens up a whole world that I that I didn't tended to just ignore because you know neighbor discovery and Slack and DHCP v six just took care of that, and I never paid too much attention to anything right of that you know, slash 64, I never paid attention to the low order four hex tets. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you're like, hmm, there's more I could do here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, th- I, I especially think that's going to be true for application developers that suddenly this frees up all sorts of capabilities and new and new ways for them to to uh, to uh, mess up our networks even more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and over consume IPv6 addresses. No, we, you know, but no, no prior restraint there, please use, use V6 in a way that, that, that it's useful for you and, and how those addresses get used. That's, that's what we need to yeah, do. Yeah. Use it to solve novel problems. Exactly. Like why not? Exactly. Yeah. Why not? It's, that's what it's there for. Well, hey guys, I, th- I think I think that does a pretty good job of covering, covering the 64 bit side, right? So we, we, the last show we covered, all the the sort of the address space side of the prefix component. Now we cover the lower sixty four. So now we can officially say that you understand how an entire v six hundred twenty bit address space works, right? <laughs> well, unlike v six, we run out of space for the podcast. I don't know. I think I, I think it's good to to sort of follow up and say thanks so much to the audience for the lower sixty four and the upper sixty four discussion. 
you can reach out to us on the IPv6 Buzz uh, on Twitter at IPv6 Buzz. You can hit up each one of us on Twitter too, at IPv6 Tom, at Scott Hogan, at E. Horley. We'd love to get some feedback about whether you guys think these sorts of shows are useful in terms of us sort of diving deep on, on the protocol stuff. So we'd love to get some listener feedback. Uh, but thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packer Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us some ratings on iTunes. Um, if you like this podcast, we really recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and the Network Break Podcast, um, plus all the other great technical content over at PackerPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.